0: New Thinking Aloud is a nonprofit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is secret space programs, and my guest is Richard Dolan, probably the most qualified person I could imagine to speak on this topic. He is the author of UFO's in the National Security State Chronology of a Cover Up 1941 to 1973, and then volume two of the same book. The Cover-Up Exposed, 1973-1991. to 1991. His other books include A.D., After Disclosure, When the Government Finally Reveals the Truth About Alien Contact, The Secret Space Program and Breakaway Civilization, The Alien Agendas, A Speculative Analysis of Those Visiting Earth, and UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Richard lives on the East Coast, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Hi, Jeffrey. It's the pleasure's mine, and um, I'm actually very, very happy and a little bit excited to be a guest on your program. So thanks for having me here.
0: Well, it's uh, been a long time coming. You've certainly been a topic of discussion on this program for, for many years. Many of our other guests have referred to your work. So it's a, a special pleasure for me to be with you today. And we'll be talking about secret space programs. I'm using that in the plural because uh, we now know quite a bit about the OSAP program we 've done several interviews about that on this channel, but uh, I know that you 're aware of many other programs and additionally you 're aware of various claims about the secret space program that you think are not justified so uh, I hope to get into both of those areas and I suppose a good starting point ought to be the early years of UFO secrecy. Your your work takes it back, as I recall, to 1941.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, through my uh, volume, UFOs in the National Security State, that's exactly right. I think when we're talking about the origins of the secret space program, it's very related to the origins of UFO secrecy in general, I would say. Uh, that is, both of them have a geopolitical rationale behind them, uh, you know, maintaining secrecy on, on UFOs or UAP now in general, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with managing the technology, keeping the technology uh, as secret as possible, partly with the, or largely with the uh, aim of weaponizing it, I, I believe, I think it was a big part of it. Uh, but also just utilizing them to any advantageous way imaginable. So secret space, I think it's similar. When we, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind about, about a secret space program is how, from the viewpoint of geopolitics, from the United States strategic perspective, that a secret space program is essential from their point of view. Space is a theater of operations in terms of communication globally, but also in terms of military projection of power. Um, you know, a 100 plus years ago, uh, it became necessary for powerful nations to dominate the seas in terms of international trade. Uh, but once the space age began, increasingly it became obvious that space also was a theater that needed to be dominated to the maximum extent possible. We're talking, this is pure military strategy, pure geopolitics, Uh, this has nothing to do with what's right, what's wrong on a moral, higher ethical levels. This is purely national uh, power play here. And so from the United States point of view during the 1950s and in the 60s and and beyond, Controlling space as much as possible has always been a paramount interest to the United States. They've never been able to, to do that fully because the Russians, uh, from the beginning have been a powerful, uh, actor in space. But the United States is constantly, uh, engaging in every, every bit of one upmanship that they can engage in vis a vis the Russians or now the Chinese or anyone else. So toward that end, there is always going to be a secret, deeply classified component to many things that the U.S. does in space. So on that basis, you can say uh, the, the necessity, the perceived necessity of a secret space program is a given from the point of view of these people. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And so toward that end, you know, you could, we could talk about like the National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO, which has all kinds of spy satellites in Earth orbit, that are doing God knows what because they don't tell us anything. But obviously, a great deal of espionage goes on, and a lot, and that's all classified. So that technically would be a secret space program when you get right down to it. When we, in uh, the the community related to UFOs, UAP, when we talk about a secret space program. It, uh, ine- inevitably we're talking about something beyond that. We're talking about things having to do with extraterrestrials or aliens, um, however that works out. So that's what we're discussing. And and toward that end, I would definitely say, yes, there is a powerful uh, argument for an ET-related secret space program. And uh, I would just end my preface by saying there is an overwhelming Um, trail of documents relating to UFO, UAP evidence over the years going back to the 1940s. I won't uh, belabor that. Again, I've talked about many of these documents countless times, but suffice to say, they don't hint, they don't suggest, but they do prove that the United States military establishment, U.S. intelligence community has been deeply concerned with UFOs since the 1940s. That's provable. So we know that they are interested in it. And uh, we also know that there have been hundreds, probably thousands, but minimum hundreds of United States military encounters with these objects, many thousands of legitimate UFO sightings every year, uh, including, I mean, all kinds of variations of that Uh, combined with the United States need to dominate space. Uh, a lot of these UFO sightings have been in Earth orbit. Uh, and even we have records of some of these objects coming in from deep space, believe it or not, coming into U.S. orbit. So all of those would mandate, from the U.S. point of view, a genuine secret space program if for no other reason than to monitor and hopefully manage whatever it is that's going on out there. Uh, Whatever the motivations of these other beings are, whether they're benign or not benign, one would have to assume that the United States military command structure would be looking at space saying, we need to have a presence out there. We need to have our eyes and ears and our sensors out there to find out just what is going on. Who are these other beings? Do we have anything to worry about? And so forth. All of those issues uh, to monitor, if nothing else. But then beyond that, we have Uh, I think, an abundance of good claims, testimony, that there's even more than that, that the United States has been doing its best to replicate whatever ET tech it can and to have its own uh, capabilities in Earth orbit and, indeed, potentially beyond uh, to deal with this matter. And now we're getting into uh, what I have sometimes called a breakaway civilization, this idea that part of our civilization, part of the classified world, has broken away, as it were, with their own science, their own technology, which are off limits to the rest of us, and their own, let us say, cosmology and understanding of the greater reality. That that they utilize that is off limits to us in their attempts to deal with this reality as they perceive it. So there's a lot of dimensions of this. Uh, There is some, as I say, some good, I would say credible, believable testimony toward that end. We have to keep in mind, we're dealing with a national security apparatus that is not transparent to us, that uh, has frequently lied to us, they can have their own justification for that, but they're not truthful on this matter. And where it's very difficult, even now in at the end of 2023, when you and I are talking, to get genuine transparent honesty from them about what it is that we're dealing with. So we're not getting honest answers. And so therefore FOIA requests about a secret space program haven't been very useful. Uh, toward proving this point. So what we have is testimony and lots of testimony from very interesting people. Um, that is where we're at. We That may change down the road, but right now we're still dealing with strong testimony, but not supported by a verified official fact coming from the United States government.
0: A lot of that testimony I know has to do with the idea of crashed UFOs that have been retrieved by our government, and, and to my knowledge, the government has yet to officially acknowledge this. But the the whistleblowers and and the informants seem seem to be very numerous, and yet at the same time, I hear from viewers who, who say this can't be true. How How is it possible that some alien civilization is capable of traveling uh, light years across space to come to Earth and, and then they crash their vehicles? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We hear this a lot. Uh, I'm going to point out, I, I find a very logical problem with this argument, which is that it basically puts the cart before the horse. In other words, <clears throat> rather than examine the actual evidence and claims. Uh we frequently will hear uh skeptics looking at this issue saying, well, this is impossible. This can't happen. Therefore, your evidence must be discarded. Uh, because we're not able to understand how it is possible for a civilization from another star system or another part of our galaxy to get here because we don't know how to do it. Therefore we're going to discount all of this evidence that is piling up in front of us. Uh, that to me, I mean, that's something that we've heard countless times. People will perceive something's impossible and discount it, whether it's in UFOs or anything else. Uh, where I would say the logical thing to do is let's look at the evidence and see how that evidence might make sense. Are there things that we're missing in our construction of reality that we need to modify so that this does make sense? That to me is a much more logical way to look at the problem. So so I, I don't like that question, but I've heard it many times. Um I would say the US, let's say the US plan to build a, 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 its own UFO s- secret space fleet. Let's just say that that's the case. Comes in several steps. Step one is to recover the ET tech um to understand how they do it. And then step two is to build and replicate it. Step three is to test it. And step four, maybe, uh, Maybe get a little help from the aliens themselves if that is possible. But let's look at step one, which is recovering the ET tech. Why is this a valid argument? I would say it's a very strong argument indeed. Last summer, many people are aware, we heard uh, David Grush, who was previously unknown to the world, talking to Congress about the fact that the United States uh, military and the pr- private contractors have in their possession ET tech and also what he called biologics, alien bodies, but the tech. Uh, he also said along those lines that there were quite a few instances of these. Some of these craft were damaged, some were not damaged. Uh, I think he said there were more than a dozen examples of this, and that seemed very shocking to people. What I would say is that's actually perfectly in line with what we had been learning for the past 50 <laughs> years of uh, research into UFO crash retrievals and recovery operations in general. Uh, I would cite probably I think the greatest of these researchers of the past, who was Leonard Stringfield. Uh, Stringfield from the late 70s until his death in 1994, uh, overwhelmingly led the pack in interviewing uh, over 100 witnesses, either direct witnesses or sometimes the spouse of those direct witnesses. Uh, that related to the acquisition of ET craft, uh, ET tech and bodies. Uh, there's just so much of that testimony. I have, I've discussed this countless times in my books and in interviews and in my own channel. Uh, but essentially we can just say Stringfield by the late seventies, he lived not far from U.S. Air Force, uh, headquarters. He, uh, Stringfield was in Cincinnati, not far from Dayton, Ohio and had a very excellent, uh, connection we could say with a lot of these military folks who were then coming to him in droves to tell their story um you could ask was this a disinformation campaign and whatnot many of us have looked into this i do not see that at all as a viable answer to this i think stringfield was getting legitimate information and he wasn't the only one by the way he just was i think getting more than many others lots of different retrievals he interviewed a doctor extensively who had claimed to have autopsied an alien body. Um, and I happen to believe that that was true in that case. Uh, lots of other witnesses of all kinds of encounters. Um, I just think it's, it's an overwhelming case that he made. Um, There've been other uh, folks who've come out over the years. Some of them are well-known. Many are not well-known at all. I think of a fellow by the name of Captain Bill U-house, uh US Marine Corps fighter pilot, Uh, back in, uh, I think, the 50s. Uh, He was also a flight tester for the Air Force of their exotic aircraft, Uh, worked for defense contractors for decades as an engineer, and stated that uh, he tested flying disks, including one that had crashed uh, or had come down in 1953 in Kingman, Arizona, one of the famous UFO uh, retrievals. He argued that this was a gift, he believed, to the US government which took it uh, into secret location to be uh, worked on, and on and on and on. So um, one can say, well, I don't believe this guy's story or that guy's story. But the problem that I have with with all of this is that there are so many. There's actually quite a few of these types of claims out there um, to show that the U.S. has actually recovered E.T. craft and then has had a, a dedicated program for decades to build its own versions of these, to test them and to fly them operationally. As as outrageous as that sounds, I think that's a significant part of the reality that is being kept from the public.
0: I'm going to assume that everything you've said is, is true and valid. Uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of stories out there uh, of people who take it even further, who say that the U.S. government already has uh, starships capable of leaving the solar system. And in fact, uh, one very prominent researcher uh, was recently reported at a major conference saying that the U.S. government possesses three of these starships and they were each given a name. And uh, there are people who claim we already have a secret base on Mars and they visited it many times and interacted with aliens from numerous other civilizations. At that location, so i I guess the average person is going to be puzzled what what can they believe? what don't they believe?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. I agree with that. It's a very difficult situation. A number of people have described this field as a hall of mirrors, and there's truth to that. um I will just say. How far does the replication go? How far does the secret science go? Do we have the capability to traverse the galaxy? Uh, I'm not going to say no. I, there, there's no way that I'm going to deny that that is possible. Uh, I've myself spoken with some very uh, knowledgeable and respectable researchers and people who've got their own perspective on this that I respect who believe us. Uh, that we've have such capabilities and and including things like bases on even Mars or the moon. Uh, now, I will just hasten to add, I don't know that any of that is true. I do believe that there is an opening for some exotic possibilities there. And so I would not rule it out. Uh, my only, uh, I guess we could say problem over the last number of years when I hear some claims is when they strike me as Belonging to a kind of movie script in which the teller of the tale is the star of the movie and, you know, the next new hero of the human race in dealing with these extraterrestrials. And, um, you know, over the last decade, particularly, there were many such claims that were coming out, uh, really flooding, I would say, littering the field with, uh, what are, were obvious to me, self aggrandizing claims. Uh, essentially, look at me, what a big hero I am, and so forth. <laughs> I'm dealing with the aliens for you. Uh, so that I, I've not ever believed. But I do think that there is a possibility that the technology can go pretty far. The only thing is I just don't know. It's very difficult. So for me, my attitude is I've I've been studying this phenomenon for 30 years now. And I've gone down a very long road of what I once thought that I believed and what I now believe. What I now believe is much bigger <laughs> than what I believed when I started. Uh, but I still, even now, uh, I try to remind myself that I, I don't have all the answers and I don't have factual confirmation of a lot of the things that I, I would like to have confirmation of. So I, I think caution is still warranted in many cases. And, you know, look, the rule of science is that conclusions are provisional. They're not religious. They're not for all time. In science, you would arrive at a conclusion that is good for now. And when we get more data, better data, we can revise those conclusions. And that is what I try to have my attitude be. And so at this point, I've got firm conclusion that there's something real going on out there that we're being lied to. I have provisional conclusions that it's pretty advanced. I have a lot of Personal speculations that I'm happy to share, but I share them only as speculations, not as firm conclusion. And I just think it's a tough position because we all want answers, we all want to know, but uh, that's not always possible. It's not always it's not always within our capability to get every single answer to every question that we have. So we just do our best
0: but i think it might be fair to say in summary that the credibility of witnesses regarding events that have taken place in the past regarding retrieval of crafts and of alien bodies uh those witnesses seem rather uh, credible whereas uh the witnesses who claim that they have been aboard these craft and have traveled to uh outside of this planet to mars or even further the credibility of those witnesses is less secure
1: i I suppose there oh let me just i'll be devil's advocate for all sides here there are a large number of, of of individuals over the years who did not seemed to me to be seeking publicity uh, but they were interviewed by various researchers and some of these people said i was taken for a ride essentially on some flying saucer and i visited this place or that place like there have been many such claims now are they credible it's hard to know it's very difficult to know uh the individuals all seemed to be sincere as far as i can tell reading their accounts many years later Were they accurate? Well, maybe they were accurate. Um, the, the issue, however, with some, with many, let's say, of some of the more recent claims, um, there's a few, there's fewer of them today than there were, say, five years ago, uh, thankfully. But those claims did seem to have an agenda, um, and always struck me as, as false and, uh, also as disingenuous and dishonest. So, um, Partly, there's a smell test involved. I admit it's not purely objective. We do our best. We're in. A, this is a difficult phenomenon. It's not simply that we're dealing with government secrecy and obfuscation. My view of it is that the phenomenon itself is a challenge. It stretches our con- cognitive capabilities to understand just what is this. Um, it would be like uh, if we went back in time a uh, hundred thousand years and looked at early humans. In a much simpler hunter-gatherer situation, we would ask ourselves, what could we possibly talk to these people about that wouldn't just blow their mind into a thousand pieces? It would be very difficult. And uh the science that we know about how the world is structured would be utterly foreign to our ancestors. And similarly, it's entirely possible that the reality of these other beings is would be difficult for us, even now in the 21st century, fully to grasp. I suspect that that would be the case. So we struggle. We struggle to understand on top of the government secrecy that makes it even more difficult.
0: Well, I think a whole other level to the phenomenon is the aspect relating to consciousness that Science, ufology is, uh, considers itself a science and most sciences are based on materialistic metaphysics. And, and yet when you dig into the reports of credible people who have had a, a wide variety of UFO related encounters, almost inevitably the topic of telepathy comes up, which, which is one that, uh, really uh, challenges materialism as, as a basis for
1: understanding the universe. I am with you 100% on that. And I'll just add on a personal level, when I began studying this subject about 30 years ago in the early 90s, uh, I didn't have any particular bias one way or the other about consciousness in general. I've, I think I've been open to a number of uh, conclusions about non-locality of consciousness and things like this. But I also, I mean, my orientation was much more materialistic than it might be today, I would say that. When you look over the long history of apparent communications that people have had with these other beings, telepathy is the norm, it seems. It's almost, it, it's it, it's a very small minority of cases, I, I think, in which one of these alien beings is actually talking out loud to us there are many cases of uh, of these beings who look completely human and some of them do speak according to the witnesses but even with a lot of those humans there's telepathic component uh those human looking beings so so that brings up consciousness clearly like what what is the capability not just of them but of us that's one of the most amazing things that comes out of this we begin to realize we have capabilities that we have dismissed. We have not been aware of. We have not tried to, uh, to develop ourselves, generally speaking. And that this phenomenon absolutely is, is waking many of us up to the fact that we are more than we thought we were. And so that's, that's exciting. Uh, there's a lot of other things about this phenomenon that are, Unc- uncertain to me, but the fact that it opens up a capability that we have is actually a genuinely exciting thing.
0: I, I'm also under the impression that secret government agencies are opening up to the uh, realities of telepathy and consciousness as part of this problem. Uh, A good example of that would be the case of Chris Bledsoe, who's been on this channel a few times, who uh, likens his contact with various uh, UFO appearances and orbs to, to a religious phenomenon. Uh, He wrote a book, The UFO of God. and uh, He reports that uh, among his contacts are people from NASA and from the CIA and uh, other areas of the government who are taking a very serious and friendly interest in in his case. It does suggest a whole new tone uh, as far as the government is concerned.
1: That interest and knowledge goes way back uh, I owe thanks to the researcher Grant Cameron for pointing out a phrase in a document from back in 1950 from the Canadian government. It's a famous uh, document in the research by uh, Wilbert B. Smith. who was an uh, 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 official with the Canadian government back then, and he was writing about this and stated, in my contacts with the U.S. Uh, U.S. science official who knows all about this, that they the government fully understands there is a mental phenomena associated with these saucers as he put it mental phenomena so this is something that the US uh, intelligence military have known about no question about it and you know you think about um, US government interest in something like remote viewing starting in the early 1970s and before that MK ultra which we don't know this for a fact, but I I believe probably had a s- several psychic components to it as well, where they were exploring these types of modalities of human consciousness. Yeah. So this is, you know, within the intelligence community, their interest in things that we would call just straight up consciousness, non-locality. Yeah, there's always been this thread that's been there. And y- you mentioned Chris Bledsoe, and yeah, his case is an interesting one in my view as well. I've spoken with Chris. I agree with you. His case is is quite interesting. And he's definitely had a lot of interest from CIA and NASA and who knows what other agencies. So there's, they're aware of it. Uh, We can also take to the bank that there's debates about this within that community. Uh, There are, uh, uh, my friend, colleague, Nick Redfern wrote about something called the Collins Group back uh, a couple of years ago. This is evangelical Christians within the defense establishment who also recognize the UFO reality, but saw, see it as demonic. And um, and so it's not difficult to see that you'd have a a kind of war within the national security state over what this all represents.
0: I guess from the point of view of secret space programs, Uh, the way I envision it, uh, if there have been multiple crashes of uh, vehicles, the government is going to assign, I I would imagine, a variety of entities, some within the government and some within private corporations, to explore, reverse engineer, if possible, these vehicles. And I'm inclined to think that these various projects, centered around different retrieved vehicles, might not even be aware of each other.
1: Entirely possible. I had a conversation uh, not that long ago, a couple of years ago, with retired CIA official Dr. Kit Green, Christopher Green. And uh, he's quite enlightening. He's a brilliant man. Uh, and he simply pointed out to me, said, look, when you're talking about space, he said, oh, yes, there's a lot going on out there. And it was his opinion that the majority of that stuff is corporate, of the advanced craft are corporate, not even officially military. There may be relationships there, national security uh, protocols that they must follow, very likely, but corporate. And to your point, are they all aware of each other? So you think back a couple of years ago when uh, the Davis-Wilson notes came out, and that's the notes by Dr. Eric Davis, in his conversation with Admiral Thomas Wilson, when those documents, then those notes came out in 2019, uh, I happened to be at for a little while there at the part of the center of that controversy because I was initially, I think, the only significant person in the UFO field to definitively give them strong support because I I knew for a fact that those notes were real, uh, and they have since been fully validated in my view. But if you read those notes. Wilson tells Davis back in 2002 that the gatekeepers of the program that he was denied access to, which were all private contractors, the corporate attorney, the program manager, and the security manager of the program, said to him that we have an intact craft not, of this, not made by man, not of human hands, not from this earth, uh, and that they had been struggling to understand it and to replicate it. That was the main message they gave him. Now, that's an interesting point. Now, do we believe this? Is it true that the black budget world has made little to no progress in advancing along these lines? I don't believe that. And I do believe that those individuals lied to Wilson. I don't think they were telling him the truth. But is it possible? that they were partially telling the truth, that they were having a difficult time with it. I would imagine it is possible, and that as you were suggesting, there could be and probably are multiple programs that make it much more difficult to make progress in, but that from a security point of view might be mandatory and necessary. By the way, Dr. Eric Davis, uh, in his own way multiple times, has sort of given credence to this line of thought, and he has said, uh, I'm hoping I'm quoting correctly here, but paraphrasing, that the secrecy has inhibited genuine sharing of scientific information on this matter. And I think this is what we are seeing potentially, yeah.
0: Well, it may be the case that uh, the the government figures that competition uh, increases the possibilities of success.
1: Yes, yes, I think so. And um, but but I think probably their number one concern is maintaining security. I was just reviewing some of these ideas uh, last night. I was chatting with my wife, Tracy, about this, in fact, and uh, we were just reading another source that indicated that at, at deeply classified levels, some of the people working on these programs, their lives could very well be at risk. If you're a scientist working on this tech, you might think that you are indispensable but you're, but there's a good reason to think that you wouldn't be. If you were a security risk, your life would very likely end very quickly. And I'll just point out that, uh, my wife and I both know of specific instances in which high level classified scientists appear to have been assassinated. Uh, these individuals are relations of friends of ours that we've come to know. And I do think it's true that those people probably were targeted for essentially assassination, because they became security risks, despite how advanced their science was and how invaluable they probably were. Nothing overrides the security, very likely.
0: Now you're reminding me of the uh, famous case, uh, I think the name is Bob Lazar, the uh, fellow who claimed that he had been at the Los Alamos laboratory where they had a retrieve vehicle, and part of his job was to help uh, reverse engineer it. And to my knowledge, he's been very public about all of this, and and nobody has come after him ex- except his career has probably been ruined.
1: Bob's actually doing pretty well these days, and I'm I'm glad for that. Um, but what you what you said previously is, is basically on the mark. Bob Lazar did work at Los Alamos National Labs in the early 1980s. Uh, This has been proven. George Knapp, the journalist, did find the directory uh, where Bob Lazar's name is in there. It is uh, further likely that uh, Lazar's claim that he met uh, physicist Edward Teller while there is true. Teller did speak at Los Alamos. Lazar was there. Uh, He did probably have a relationship with Teller, who probably then helped him get a job at EG&G. Years later at what we now call Area 51 or S-4. Yes to all of that. Uh, Lazar did feel that his life was in danger after he, one could say foolishly, took some friends out to uh, watch the test craft that he knew when they were being flown and where they were being flown. Uh, they got video the first week weekend they were there, and then the second time they went there, they were caught, and Lazar got into trouble and became very worried over his safety. And one thing led to another. He lost his job there and then eventually went to George Knapp at uh, KLAS in Las Vegas. And then the rest is history. Uh, now, Lazar was subject to many attacks during those early years. Um, legal uh, attacks and smear campaigns. And in fact, all throughout, you know, my uh, the late Stanton Friedman, who I was always uh, friends with, but Stan always went after Bob Lazar and called him a fraud at every opportunity. I never agreed with that. So Lazar's had his detractors. But I think it's it's true that he has weathered the storm. Uh, I think he's in a good place. He's actually had, has done defense contracting work for the United States government with this company called United Nuclear. It's kind of an amazing story. And um, he's now an icon. <laughs> so Bob's doing just great. But is his story true? I've always believed that it is true. I think that he is truthful. Um, And I guess I'll just leave it there for now. But yes, I believe Bob Lazar's story.
0: And another controversy would be around uh, Colonel Philip Corso, who wrote the book The Day After Roswell and claimed that he was responsible for transferring technological innovations uh, captured uh, in retrieved crashed UFOs into
1: private industry. I know. It's amazing. And, and uh, died very quickly a year after that book was published. Um, Yeah, I I talked with uh, Phil Corso's co-author a number of times about that book. That's William Burns, former publisher of UFO Magazine. Um, I think, you know, when I read that book the first time when it came out, I have the version with the forward by Senator um, uh, Strom Thurmond, who Corso Thurman. worked for, before Thurmond pulled it. Thurmond said, yes, Corso's a great American hero. I stand by this man. He did not know that this was a UFO book uh, and then pulled it. But when uh, I read the book, I recalled uh, seeing things that looked like historical errors to me. Um, And of course, you know, you go to the blog sites back in those days and people ripped Corso to pieces over those mistakes. But as Bill Burns pointed out to me, uh, Corso wrote that book. He was practically deaf. He was his health was terrible. Uh, He hand wrote it all. It was not easy manuscript to decipher at times. Uh, You know, it's what you would expect often from someone in very advanced years doing his best. So could he have made mistakes? I'm thinking, yes, of course, he could absolutely have made uh, mistakes here and there. Does that invalidate what he was saying fundamentally? And I think, no, it does not. We have to be careful. Uh, and I don't want to sound uh, ageist per se, but we do, we do need to be careful when someone is in very advanced years uh, engaged in recollections, because it can be that those recollections are not accurate. I saw that with my own dad as he was approaching his 80th year. Uh, my dad was a former New York City cop, told me every story he ever went through, I think, and I noticed how they began to change in his last few years. I'd point this out to him, and he would say, no, no, that's exactly how it was, but I knew it wasn't. So you have to be careful. Having said all of that, I I think Corso's story is true, and it's also worth pointing out that... Uh, there's a whole invisible college out there. Let's call it the behind-the-scenes guys. A lot of them connected to Robert Bigelow uh, people. You mentioned uh, Combe Kelleher at the beginning of our conversation. Well, Combe Kelleher, of course, is very close with Bigelow. Hal Puthoff, Kit Green, John Alexander, uh, many, many, Eric Davis. I know that a lot of those folks interviewed Philip Corso very carefully. And my understanding from them is that they had full confidence in him. So I, th- I take that as well as, as uh, important. I think, of course, I was telling the truth.
0: Well, you brought up John Alexander, who, who has been a close friend of mine, uh, especially when I lived in Las Vegas.
1: And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. He uh, never cared he, much for me.
0: <laughs> he, he wrote a book about UFOs and described how when he was in the military, he... For, had an informal group of people trying to uh, find out what the military actually knew about UFOs. He concluded that they, they knew almost nothing and that they weren't really capable of knowing things, that the government mindset was simply not subtle enough to grasp the complexities of, of this phenomenon. Uh, But he also questioned Corso. He, He felt that the various discoveries like night vision and fiber optics that Corso implied came out of the crash at Roswell in 1947, Alexander said, well, there were obvious antecedents to those discoveries known in the industrial world decades before the Roswell crash.
1: That's true. Oh, uh, you can make the argument about the transistor. Many people have said the transistor came from ET tech. It's, if you go by Roswell, it's way too close. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, Bob Wood has talked about the Cape Girardeau crash of 1941 leading to the transistor. He may be right about that. Uh, relating to what John Alexander said about the the inability of the cover up to really be that sophisticated, I, I have always uh, had a 180 opposite opinion from him. And I've, in fact, debated with him publicly um, on this matter. And I think I've made my point far better than he did, uh, to be honest about it. Um, He, you know, stated, uh, this is 10 years ago and more, that the US government would be incapable, as you say, of of maintaining the secret. Uh, His uh, attempt to get to the bottom of it was known as the Advanced Theoretical Physics Group, which he did organize starting in 1985. He brought a very good group of people around him to do some study of this matter. And uh, let me just say this. I spoke to one of the members of that group. I'll leave his name out of it for now, but a very brilliant man. But I asked this individual, uh, do you think, you know, do you believe John Alexander's claim that that he looked and that your group looked for evidence of a UFO cover-up within the Pentagon and didn't find any? Absolutely said, no, not true. We knew there was a cover-up. Now, uh, you know, why would John Alexander say what he did? Well, that's for him to know and for us to find out. I heard, I, don't, I haven't gotten this confirmed, that he just recently s- revised his opinion on the nat- nature of a UFO cover-up. And if that is the case, then I would say good for him. It's long overdue. They are more than capable of engaging in decades-long cover-up. My God, you know, we're talking about the group that did MKUltra, did mind-control experiments, sometimes terminal, on individuals. Uh, that only was learned by a mere roll of the historical dice. Uh, the way that MK Ultra came out could easily be rumored to this very day. Uh, UFO cover-up, same thing. It's been very, very important for them to keep that secret. I know the
0: individual who you just referred to, who was part of John Alexander's group, and uh, as a matter of fact, you write about him in in your book on the uh, the secret space project, and he describes having encountered uh, an alien, if I recall correctly, at one of the casinos in
1: uh, in Las Vegas. That is the man. Yes, he's a. Uh... I interviewed him and his wife. They're both
0: friends of mine.
1: Oh, well, he's a great guy. Yeah. And and his wife's very nice, too. Yes, that's right. He said this to me explicitly. I just don't want to give up his name publicly because I don't know that I have permission for that.
0: I, I totally understand and I agree and I know that his opinions are at odds with John Alexander, but it raises the question of aliens among us. Aliens with Complete human appearance, although obviously uh, greater telepathic ability you you report his observations and, and a couple of others in in your book and, and and you say, we we need to take this seriously.
1: We, we absolutely do uh, you, you know if, if it's just one case, a couple of cases here and there, you might have the luxury of of dismissing it and living within your uh, reality box still. but when you get case after case some of which have come to me directly, and then there's countless others that are out there of perfectly human-looking beings who seem to have this capability that don't seem like they're from here. Uh, Then I feel it's incumbent on me to take them seriously. Uh, And it's actually, you know, the more I've I've thought about it, the more it makes sense to me that this would be the case. Um, It doesn't mean that these human-looking beings are actually from another world. They could be directly from here. They could be absolutely genetically part of the human race that developed here on Earth. But why would it be impossible that an alien group from elsewhere would come here and recognize, Okay, our biology is really not well suited for Earth. Wrong gravity, wrong solar radiation, wrong microbes, all of those things would make it difficult for them. Well, what might they do? Work with Earth-based genetic organisms. Modify them for their purposes to work for them on that basis. And why not simply take the leading species on the planet, these human beings, take a few of them, breed them for yourself, genetically enhance them as you wish and have them work for your society how is that so difficult to fathom to me it's a very i would do it if i were an alien that's exactly probably what i would want to do uh you'd want to use humans and uh and open up whatever genetic capabilities they have for telepathy and and you know whatever technological enhancements you can put in along the way too why not so i think that's actually likely uh as well as i I entertain the idea that these other alien types that people have reported may very well be derived from Earth-based DNA. I don't see that as impossible at all. Don't know that to be true, but it it doesn't seem illogical to me.
0: What you're raising with the suggestion is that the many reports uh, that we have of UFO abductions and particularly the reports involving the exchange of genetic materials and sexual experiences and the people who report pregnancies and and their fetuses were taken from them there are even people who report repeated abductions, where they come and visit these young children who are apparently their offspring and are being raised somehow in in an alien culture, that these also uh, would need to be taken seriously.
1: I agree with that. Yes, I think they must be taken seriously. These are, uh, it's easy to dismiss the claims when one hasn't really gone into the weeds and read the specific accounts fact is, there's so much credible detail provided in them. Uh, you could just say, give a blanket statement and say, well, there's uh, a hypnagogic uh, fantasy or the, hypnot- the hypnotherapist was leading the witness. That could be possible. I would never say that that's impossible. But the reality is that there is so much consistency across the board. I can't see that it's it's explained in that manner. I think there's there's a there, there. And, uh, and how difficult is it to really imagine that you would have a number of different types of ET programs in place for different purposes? So one would be to um, have completely human looking avatars working for them on the surface. Another would be to develop a kind of hybrid or various types of hybrid species between human and et um i'm thinking of the scenario that was outlined by dr david jacobs in uh, several of his books uh where he's talking about the creation of human looking hybrids he calls them hybrids that are basically infiltration units and um i don't i don't think that these are impossible at all my guess is that we, we're bringing in the whole neighborhood right now we human beings i mean a we've got an amazing planet we have, yeah, there's probably other beautiful life-supporting planets out in the galaxy and in the universe. I would not doubt it. But how common are they really? It's worth asking. When you start getting into the the what appears to be the history of planet Earth, at least as scientists currently understand it. There are a lot of things about this world that are beautifully unique uh, on many levels, which we don't have to get into all of them, but we got really lucky, we hit the jackpot. Uh, we have incredible genetic diversity. We have all this beautiful water. Uh, this is the only planet in the solar system where I think you can have fire. Uh, we, we've got a lot of really neat things going on here that are a draw in and of themselves. We have uh, a unique situation where a lot of heavy minerals are on the crust of the planet. Uh, and I think that's simply because of an early asteroid collision that created our moon. Be that as it may, we've got all of that, plus now we have this standing up primate species, human beings, that have finally gotten to a place where we are conscious of ourselves, conscious of our, uh, increasingly of our place in the universe, conscious of our spirituality, conscious of uh, a now creating, we're on the fast track here. We've discovered the keys of science and we are reinventing ourselves and becoming something uh, exciting and terrifying at the same time. We're moving into a, some kind of transhumanism with very strong AI, nano engineering of who knows what, uh, and quantum computing, and where will it stop? Where, who knows? So we are leaping into their world right now. It, it, progress doesn't go incrementally like this. It doesn't go like that. It goes by leaps leaps it only seems incremental to us because we're living in the in the weeds when you take a few steps back it's a leap a couple of generations and we're like wow we've gone straight up almost vertical up and they see this they see this you compare where we are to the time of uh, abraham lincoln i mean not that long ago where we were in a society of horses pulling wooden carts and now i'm having a conversation with you God knows how far away you are. Perfect video. It is amazing. So, and this is only the beginning. So they know this. We're about to leap into their world. And they must be wondering, what's the story with these these standing up primates? They've got nuclear weapons. They love to kill each other. They're aggressive, as all apex predators are. That's us. We, we don't play around, man. We... We just take it for granted that we can conquer all other forms of life on this planet and make them work for us. You know, I've got a beautiful cat in this house. Her name is Yates. I love my cat. But she she does, well, she does what she does. But she lives here because I bring her in and I feed her. Uh, she's got it good. But we have other kinds of animals that we just, we dominate them. We dominate plants. We take it for granted. Uh, we're used to getting our way, and now we're moving out into the larger universe, and I think that we're bringing in all kinds of attention, the good, the bad, and potentially the ugly i don't I don't know that all of these species out there are spiritually evolved. It's not a given to me that they are maybe some maybe not uh, I think therefore it's incumbent upon us to uh, have as open and adult a conversation about this in public as we can so that we can actually examine this. And whether or not we as a society really have the capability to discuss this in a mature way is a whole other question. But that's what we need to do, my opinion. In order
0: to discuss it uh, in a mature way, it would be very helpful if we knew what the actual facts were. And, and we have people who are seemingly credible, like Chaim Ashed in Israel. A, uh, a uh, very high official in the Israeli Space Agency, who claims that the United States government has actually signed some sort of agreement with alien entities, presumably. I mean, the implication seems to be that we've agreed that they can go around and abduct people occasionally in exchange,
1: perhaps, for technology transfer. Yeah, he did say uh something to that effect. That's a claim, actually, that was brought out by John Lear uh, almost 40 years ago, actually, uh, 35 years ago. Uh, is it true? Hayam Heshad's, you know, not, no one to trifle with. He's a very significant individual um, who is extremely high up prominent in the Israeli uh, defense community, without a doubt, highly respected man. Um, and, you know, what I certainly take seriously the claims that he has said about this. And he, I think it's probably, what's definite, what I think is probably true is that organizations like NASA, uh, organizations like the, you know, whatever Israeli space organizations that there are over there and in other countries, they do know this is true. They know that there is, there are non-human intelligences operating out in, in orbit they know this. It's, I think it's impossible for them not to know. Uh, certainly, NASA higher-ups absolutely know this. Uh, as far as the treaty goes, it's entirely possible. Look, there are claim after claim of human ET collaboration on whatever level. I mentioned Bill Ewhouse earlier. He is one of these individuals who made such claims. Uh, there's Dan Sherman, who I you know, I read his book, uh, Above Black, several times, and I I believe that book. I think, I think it's true what he says that there's a kind of human ET form of communication that goes on back channel. Uh, if you look at Bob Lazar's story, I mean, the indication, the hint is that there's an ET collaboration element there too. So I think if that's the case, would there be something like a treaty? Totally possible. One thing that I think we would all want to know I was thinking about this recently. Uh, you know, we're in an era where there is a strong push for transparency or even disclosure on UFOs. We uh, reminded of what David Grush said last summer about the, act, the uh, holding of alien biologics. So I think that is true. And if we ever get to a point where we can honestly Where we can get an honest answer from the national security state on this matter the honest answer being yes we've got alien biologics then i would absolutely want to know what is our relationship genetically to these beings is there a relationship do they have anything in common with us that would that would be actually one of the first things i'd want to know personally is there anything in alien dna that connects them to human beings, to homo sapiens? And if so, who comes from whom? You know, are, are gray aliens derivations from human biology as they very well might be of human and ET biology, combination thereof? I think it's totally possible. Uh, are any of these other alien beings derived from us rather than the reverse we tend to think oh we come from them but what if some of them come from us and are manipulated by an even more advanced group that no one has ever seen i wonder about these things this is what i think about as i'm falling asleep at night
0: It raises all sorts of possibilities, and one of the points that you make in your book about the secret space program is that some of the witnesses have have said that the truth of these matters is is so horrendous that
1: it's questionable whether we could handle it. Every now and then, this comes up. Uh, every and. I shouldn't even say every once in a while. It almost seems to come up with regularity in that the the demand for secrecy is overwhelming and paramount. uh, I've told a a story of uh, President Jimmy Carter being briefed on this matter in June of 1977. I have this on one very good source, very good source in my opinion, who said to me, that when Carter was briefed in this is his first year in office as president, he was briefed in June of 1977 on this matter. Uh, The individual did not know what was said specifically to the president, but what he does know is that when the president was seen at the conclusion of his briefing that his head was on in his hands, his elbows were on the desk, and he was holding his head kind of like this, and either... uh, in tears, or nearly so, that he was deeply upset. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a couple of, lots of different possibilities here that could have upset him deeply, but it's not difficult to imagine someone saying to him, "Uh, this is a difficult situation, you have no control over it, sir, and you're just going to have to live with this this reality. They're doing whatever they do. Uh, I doubt that he would have been head in hands if he had been told something really wonderful about the nature of these ETs. And they're, they're good guys. They're here to help us out. I just doubt that it would have affected him that negatively. But the, the stories, uh, the watch-out stories, you know, you can call them that, have been with us for a long, long time. Uh, even the early researcher Donald Kehoe back in the 50s and 60s um, I know that he got a couple of them. I've been trying to track them down, and I haven't had success, but I know in the back of my mind, Kehoe got a couple of them as well. They've they've been floating around. In other words, there, there's a, a kind of a dark element to all of this. It may be true, it may not be true, but not knowing the answer, I do think it's incumbent on us to at least keep open that possibility that there's you know there could be wonderful things here and there could be some unsettling things going on as well
0: many people draw the comparison to when the uh, european cultures encountered various indigenous groups in africa or in polynesia uh, the the results were very unfortunate for for those groups uh, who became colonized and that we may be encountering a, a, some sort of superior consciousness, uh, and the results could be uh, similarly unfortunate for us, uh, sim- to, similar to the way we've treated others.
1: May, maybe, yeah. When when that's an interesting example, uh, because when the Europeans came to the New World, as everyone called it, uh, you know, they were looking for gold, they were looking for riches. It was all about getting cash making money and enslaving uh the indigenous people for their benefit which they did not hesitate to do they did all of that and ended up destroying those original cultures as we all know Um, now et being here we're not seeing that happen overtly Uh, we're not seeing that we are seeing a very significant presence that they seem to have my view of it is that they blanket the globe they are everywhere there is no place where they don't go and i continually ask what are they doing what's their infrastructure like here what are their goals but even if those goals are benign it's it's just worthwhile for us to remind to remember that they these other beings represent radical change if nothing else radical change in terms of the technology that they have, in terms of the level of consciousness that they appear to have. If those, if and when those are introduced to our society, there is no way that it won't cause radical rapid change. And that could be a good thing in the long run, but it's going to be disruptive. There's no way that it can't be. Uh, even under the best of circumstances, there's going to be infrastructure, interruptions, and difficulties, and uh, and fear, and all of that, I think, is going to be unavoidable. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't move forward with this. Um, all significant change is scary. It's always frightening, the unknown. Uh, I've always believed that success is more frightening than failure, to be honest. When when you succeed at something, now you're on a higher level, and now more eyes are on you. You have more responsibility, more to do. Uh, everything becomes bigger. If you fail, you're right back to your old comfortable position where you were. It's easy. We are at a at a verge of reinventing ourselves as a species, as a society, as a civilization, with or without these other beings. It's happening. We're already going through uh, what I call the fourth stage of humanity. I, I firmly believe we're moving into a new era of, of uh, human existence, from hunting and gathering to settled agriculture, to science and industry, and now to stage four, which is essentially, I don't know, uh, transhumanist, 24-7 digital surveillance and digital digi- digitization of human society, essentially. Uh, we don't know all of the outcomes that that will have, but it's going to be a radical transformation of, of people and of our society. So that's happening regardless. And will it turn us into a, a hive mind to some extent? Many people believe that's possible. I do, I think that's possible. Um, it could be that we're becoming like they are already, that they have become. It could be that the the, technological changes that are inevitable for us at this point, there's no way to stop this train are making us like the aliens on many levels. And that this may take a number of generations to work itself out, maybe even a couple of centuries, but that could be the case. And, and they see this, they know this, they're like, okay, these human beings, it's not just that they have nukes. It's not just that they have computers. It's the whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle, as people used to say, the whole package is bringing us into their world so that a connection, open connection with them is probably inevitable. But there's a lot of question as to how that will work out. And is that, you know, what are we going to gain and what are we going to lose in the process? like To me, these are important questions. Do we lose any part of our traditional humanity in the process? Or can we somehow enhance our traditional humanity? And I mean, these are going to be questions that will probably take centuries to resolve.
0: And there's also the uh, issue raised by researchers like Jacques Vallée that they've been here for centuries, uh, maybe millennia watching us. In fact, I think it's not at all unreasonable to think that they've been around since the dawn of human civilization. One of my one of my faculty advisors uh, when i was a graduate student was james harder he was the research director for one of the early ufo groups called apro aerial phenomena research organization and he specialized in hypnotizing uh, uh, ufo contactees and abductees and uh, in fact i met betty hill at his home on, on one occasion. And, but he told me that his research revealed to him that uh, these aliens were very different from us. For one thing, they had an average lifespan of about 20,000 years. And, and For another thing, he said their civilizations are relatively small in terms of population, maybe 20,000 individuals, not 2 billion or 8 billion.
1: Um, I didn't know that, so thank you for uh, relaying that. James Harder, of course, is a uh, was a great researcher uh, back at, during that period of time, and it's awesome that you knew him as well as you did. By the way, I think it's really cool. And uh, I had a whole thing I was thinking about, and and uh, the twenty thousand year thing just <sighs> took over my whole consciousness. I'm like, my God, because I've heard you know hundreds of years, many centuries. I had not heard 20,000 years, so uh, that's quite fascinating. But uh, now I can't... I can't re-
0: well, we, we were talking about how they may have been with us since the dawn of civilization.
1: I'll just offer my two cents on this. Some people can agree, some people may not. Um, I do think it's very likely that we've been subject to a longstanding monitoring and observation. I do think so. But I would, uh, I would just offer my perspective on this, which is that during most of our existence there wasn't really a whole lot that we could do about them or they about us we weren't really in a position where we were about to leap into their world so to speak you know when you're when your greatest accomplishment is discovering fire and making stone tip tools it's going to be difficult to deal with this type of intelligence in any kind of uh, comprehensive way and so i think what it looks like to me Yes, there are pretty good uh, accounts that would indicate they've been here for a while. Although I will just say, I think a lot of those accounts are way overstated and not as strong as some people think. That's my opinion of having a look at them. But l- many of them, I would say, yeah, I I believe that, and it makes sense to me. But I would also, you know, I I once heard a researcher not long ago say almost offhandedly, they've been here forever. And we hear this a lot. They've been here forever. But I ask, who's the they? Is it the gray aliens? Is it the reptilians? Is it the human-looking beings? Who's the they? And have they had a consistent program over 50,000 years or more? Because that's a long period of time. And I don't know about that. What I would say is there are two periods of time historically where I feel I can identify where they made a leap in the quantity, in their quantity of being here. One would be in the 19th century and one would be during the Second World War where I think you can see an identifiable jump in the number of good, reliable sightings. Now, part of that might be we develop better capabilities of noticing them. Yes, no question. But is that all of it? I don't think so. I don't believe so. I think, I think something quantifiable happened during the Second World War especially to bump this to the next level. I think we brought in a lot of new people, a lot of new observers, um, not just one group, but very possibly multiple intelligences entirely likely. So the phenomenon, I would, uh, I'm of the opinion, it is not consistent over the millennia. There may be one group that has been here for all this time, but they're not the only ones around today. That's what I think.
0: There's also the issue that in earlier eras, when such phenomena were reported, it was, I should think, typically in the context of a religious tradition. They might have been identified as angelic or demonic beings uh, because that would have been the language that was most acceptable in earlier eras.
1: Yeah, that is true. Uh, I think that's that's clearly true. And we want to keep in mind that, you know, a number of events that we think of as religious could very well be something with extra layers to them that could be extraterrestrial. Yes, absolutely. Um, There are just a number of cases of of uh, religious sightings or different types of sightings that I've developed a little bit of skepticism about when I look at them carefully. I, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I think some of the accounts that are widely uh, discussed in the literature as evidence of ancient aliens, I, I just don't see it that way. I think there's um, we don't always understand the ancient cultures very well, the way that people communicated, the reasons they would say this and that, and so I'm, I don't believe all of them are evidence of ancient aliens. But I think some could very well be. And there's look, there's great mysteries in our ancient archaeology, in our ancient world that I, I haven't figured out. I haven't figured out how the Great Pyramid of Giza was built. I don't know if I'll ever get that one. That's that seems to me an, a, another level of complexity that I've is beyond my mind to figure out. Like how was that built with such perfection, absolute perfection. Um, did they have help? Yeah, I, I actually think probably was help there. So there's there's a lot of room for um, an ancient alien presence in our world. And I don't know if I'll ever get to the bottom of it, but I, I do think that there's something there, yeah.
0: And then returning to the case of Chris Bledsoe, his encounters, he he describes a being who sometimes manifests for him, sort of steps out of an orb. Uh, He calls her the lady And, and she has healing powers. It certainly has all of the uh, accoutrements of a religious experience happening in real time uh, with many witnesses and videos and uh people from the government looking at it, and uh, lots of concomitants associated with UFOs as well the The overlap between religious phenomenon and alien beings seems to be almost inseparable in that case.
1: It's really strong with Chris Bledsoe. I mean, that's essentially it's a Marian apparition when you really get down to it. It's the Virgin Mary. Uh, I think many could make that claim. Uh, It reminds one of the Fatima uh, case in Portugal in 1917. Uh, What Chris Bledsoe has in some ways overlaps with what you get with uh, Fatima. I mean, not with the number of witnesses, perhaps, but a lot of other elements of it remind me of that. And so, uh, and, you know, there's researchers now currently, there's Diana Pasolka, who, of course, uh, is looking into a lot of those overlaps as well. And I think that's a legitimate area of inquiry, for sure. Uh, I don't think that it, it fully solves the riddle of UFOs or UAP, but it's just one other aspect. I mean, it really is amazing when you think about how complex this phenomenon really is. Uh, is it... There's a consciousness connection which we have been talking about. There's what seems to be a spiritual connection, uh, and there's also a definite technological, strong technological element to this. There's physical elements to this, uh, and you got the abductions, and you've got all of these different elements to it. It's this is why like it's a it's a genuinely difficult element uh, thing to understand, and then you get uh, into the real crazier areas like skinwalker ranch or um, a place called marley woods which was investigated by ted phillips these portal type areas where now we're dealing with space and time in ways that are challenging to us it's like what the heck is going on here what what is this reality that we're finding ourselves in i believe that the ufo phenomenon is a kind of portal itself into us understanding this reality i think it's a You know, there was a great book, 60 plus years ago, I I had to read it back in grad school, by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I knew that you would know this book too. It's a classic. Um, And Kuhn introduced the, the term paradigm in that book from 1962, I believe. And what he argued is that, it's kind of what I was saying earlier, where progress is not linear, it jumps. Kuhn said this, that that we develop more and more information that gives us a new paradigm, a new way of understanding the world. And it happens in the form of a revolution. And I I have come to feel strongly that the UFO phenomenon is one of these things that will bring us into, that opens the door into a totally new paradigm. It's a revolution. We're not fully grasping all of the implications of that, but it's there. It's essentially showing us the way to this new paradigm. And I do think at some point we're going to make a breakthrough in understanding it properly.
0: Before we close our interview, I think it's useful to, to bring up many cases where there seems to be an overlap between the evidence for an afterlife and contact with aliens. It goes really back to the 19th century when alien beings would show up in spiritualist seances. and and You also have reports from people like Whitley Streber who suggests that when he's having an encounter with the visitors, as he calls them, alien beings who seem to be able to enter his home at will, that that they are sometimes accompanied by individuals who he later
1: learns are deceased. It is a fascinating overlap, and I will just tell you and uh, your audience that I believe in an afterlife. Uh, I had an experience with my own father when he passed away, where at the moment of his passing, four years ago, my wife and I was sitting in our living room 150 miles away and watching our recessed, dimmed ceiling lights flash bright and dim, bright and dim. What it turned out at the very moment he died. Uh, I will never, ever believe that's a coincidence. There's something very unusual about this reality that we have not grasped, uh, and it includes some kind of existence. Of our consciousness our soul there's a good word beyond the death of these physical bodies that's something that i personally do believe in and it's a really great question to ask what is that relationship to the ufo phenomenon and i don't have all of those answers i'm aware that whitley uh, and his uh, late wife anne were deeply engaged in these questions and other people are as well and, I haven't made as much progress, but I think it's very important to understand and to grasp these issues, because there's something important there.
0: I totally agree. There is something important there, but it also makes me sympathetic to John Alexander's viewpoint that government officials are incapable of addressing a mystery of that level of complexity.
1: This is a heck of a mystery that goes that goes beyond our normal ability to understand what is reality. It represents something beyond it is a new paradigm. And I will agree that, you know, government officials, even military intelligence officials really have to struggle to understand just what is going on. But it has always been my contention. And this is when I debated this formally with John back in 2011, that they may not understand it all, but they have a lot more information than the rest of us, poor slobs out here in a lot of those specifics. They know many, many things that we do not know. Um, And that's just, I think, the reality of it. But it is a challenge. It's true. This is a difficult problem. And it, it, you know, I think the analogy of looking at early humans compared with us is is apt. If we were to go back in time, even 1,000 years, a mere 1,000 years, find the smartest people around back then and try to explain our world to them, good luck. That would be a very difficult, tall order. And so that's explaining it to our own species, a mere thousand years different from us. What about the knowledge that a highly intelligent alien species has, God knows how much more advanced they are than us, to explain to us the nature of reality? Uh, That could be a very difficult thing indeed. Well,
0: Richard, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. We've covered a lot of ground. You're so well-informed about all of the the many details of this complex arena. Uh, I'm so glad to be able to share your point of view with our viewers, and and I hope you'll be willing to come back uh, in the
1: future on New Thinking
0: Allowed. You'd be most welcome.
1: Without a doubt. And I would just like to to say to you, I I was very um i don't want this to sound the i was very impressed by the deep level of knowledge that you bring to this subject of, of the ufo phenomenon i know that you have been engaged in all aspects of consciousness for your career but it's really refreshing and it's really nice for me uh to chat with you about this area that i have studied for so long and to see that you are right at the leading edge of a lot of thinking in the ufo phenomenon yourself and uh, it was a real treat for me to talk with you
0: well well thank you and uh, i look forward to f- future conversations and for those of you watching or listening thank you for being with us you after all are the reason that we are here <music> I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce
1: new videos.